It's an honor to be here with you today. How are you all doing? Some of you are doing okay. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get started with the word. Father, we come before you in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for being such a good God, for loving us the way that you do, Lord. Thank you that you've chosen us before we even knew about you, Lord. So today we come with open hearts, with open minds, ready and willing to receive whatever you have for us today, Father. I just pray that every person that is here today would leave, even those that are watching online, Lord, that after today's service, Father, that they would, that they would be filled with hope and an expectation, knowing that you are God, that you are good, and that you are a promise keeper, Father. Lord, we just thank you that you are already in our midst, working in each and every one of us. So, Father, we dedicate this service to you today, and we ask that you would do your will in this place. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. amen. Well, it's a joy, a great pleasure to be here. I'm always honored that Pastor Rudy would share this pulpit with me. I've been here <clears throat> before. I think it's been a few months now since I've been here. How many of you are here today with a heart of expectation? Three of you, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, five, five, there we go. Let me ask you again, how many of you are here expecting something, Amen. right? And when I say that, I, I don't refer to expecting something, you know, this is no prosperity gospel. It's like I'm expecting breakthrough in, in the area of finances alone, but I think that you have to have breakthrough in your life in general. But you have to come with a heart of expectation. As we were worshiping today, which the worship set was amazing. I just loved it, enjoyed it so much. I'm reminded of uh, the prophet Habakkuk. I don't know, am I getting a little feedback with the microphone? Do you hear it? Is it okay? Um, and, and the prophet Habakkuk is known in the Bible as the complaining prophet. Uh, he complained a lot. And so he would go to God and, you know, the Israel was upside down and he's complaining and He's expecting and he's asking God, basically, you know, in a nutshell, and I'm paraphrasing, when and why. It's like, when are you going to do what you said you were going to do? When are you going to move the way that you said you were going to move? When is there going to be breakthrough? I've been expecting this for such a long time, and I haven't seen you move. And then God replies to the complaining prophet. How many of you have been like the complaining prophet? I have. <laughs> Like, just like Habakkuk. And God says to Habakkuk something. He says, though the promise may tarry, what tarry means is to linger. Though the promise may linger, though you don't see anything happening yet, expect it. Those are the words. Expect it. Because surely it will come to pass. I love that. Because whatever he said he would do, he will do. Whatever the promise is, he will do. Now, I do want, there's a little caveat. Sometimes we're asking for a breakthrough in our health. Because that's pretty common in the RGV. As you look around and you see hospitals popping up everywhere, people go, wow, we're becoming this you know, metropolitan city with all these hospitals. No, no. It just means that there are a lot of sick people. That's not a good thing. Hospitals popping up everywhere is a sign of infirmity, of disease. The word disease comes from two words. The prefix dis, 
which means without and ease, which is peace. Without peace. That's what disease stands for. And so we're expecting this breakthrough and we come like the prophet and we say, Lord, move in my midst, heal me. Here's the caveat. You've got to position yourself in order to receive. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean praying, singing, and expecting. It means that I have to do something. If it's my health, maybe I need to change my diet. Maybe I need to exercise. Maybe I need to stop eating this or that. You know, if it's spiritual breakthrough, maybe I need to turn from my wicked ways like the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name, he says, would seek me, would humble themselves, would pray, would seek my face, he says, and, and turn from their wicked ways, then, conditional statement, I will what? Heal their land. Yes. And so we come with the heart of expectation, but we have to position ourselves in order to receive. That's just the way it happens. I'm a, you probably know if you've seen me here before, if you heard me here before, I am a, um, aside from being an educator and a psychologist, I'm a therapist. And I see people all the time that come to therapy and they think, they just come, sometimes they'll throw their husband in the room and say, fix him. <laughs> I'm like, fix him? Or, or, or you know, the, the husband will drag in the wife and say, she has issues. Fix her. Or sometimes they'll bring their teenage son or daughter and throw him in the office and say, fix him. It doesn't work that way. There has to be a disposition. Now, I've said this over and over. God is not looking for perfection. He's only looking for disposition. Are you willing and so the question is, yes, you are expecting, but are you willing? And so that's not the message today. It's not about expecting. But I think that every Christian should live with a heart of expectation. You wake every morning and you expect great things, even though they may not happen. <laughs> you continue to expect them. And when things don't happen the way you thought they were going to happen, you still say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We, we pray, there was a, Part of the song said something about Goliath and you know, I have my giants and something like that. And I always like to say that God sometimes allows a Goliath in your life so that you can discover the David inside of you. Amen. You know, he will allow those things. That doesn't mean that God is not for you. He's still for you. We live in a fallen world. We go through things. God, you know, Jesus said, in this life you shall have what? Afflictions, trials, but rejoice. He said, be of good cheer. Put a smile on your face. He says, I've already overcome the world. You know, you get up with that expectation every day. You say, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. As long as I'm living in accordance and in agreement with your word, I know it's going to be okay. I don't want to be the one to propitiate a problem. I don't want to be the one to open the door to the enemy and say, hey, come on in. This is my family. Uh-uh. I don't want to be that person. So we start shutting those doors. That's what I mean about, you know, expecting, but also doing. We have to do. We have to shut doors. We have to repent. We have to turn from our wicked ways in order for there to be healing. Amen? So, <laughs> that's not the message. The message is about one of the greatest dysfunctions in Christianity today. Now, as I was doing some research, I'm a person who does a lot of research. I was looking at what are the greatest dysfunctions in Christianity, meaning everyone in this room, all of us. Because we are born-again believers, or I would hope that we're all born-again believers. And if you're not, I hope that at the end of the service, you would say yes to Jesus. You would say, Lord, I really need you. Okay? Like I did back 
when I was 29 years old. But two of the greatest dysfunctions is number one, and so I'm not going to focus on that, but number one is uh, bad theology. You know, there's a lot of bad theology in, in our nation. And you turn on the TV and you watch one church and another church and another church and another church, and you go, man, that's bad theology. That doesn't even line up with the Word of God, you know. Uh, I was, uh, just to kind of give you an example, I was watching a, as I was doing some research, I was watching some of the different churches, and there was an Easter service that popped up from one of the church, one of the bigger churches in the United States called Transformation Church. I'm not going to mention the pastor's name, but it does rhyme, his last name rhymes with uh, Rod, but I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> and, and he's really, he's big. I mean, every, he's, he grew exponentially. And I was really uh, surprised to hear him say that he had never put on an Easter service until this past Easter service because even as a pastor, he didn't even know, he said this publicly, he didn't even know what Easter was about. And he was a pastor. It really shocked me. It really shocked me. And so funny story is that I'm standing at my office next to a, uh, a, a co-worker and we're talking about theology. And we're talking about churches and what is being taught today in churches and all these things. And then I bring up this topic and I tell him, you know, this pastor from Transformation Church. And I said, did you see, you know, did you see the, uh, you know, the stuff that he put out recently on social media about his church and Easter and all these things? It was, it was like, a, it, it, in all honesty, it was like a Beyonce concert is what it was. It wasn't any, it was far from being an Easter celebration. And as I'm talking to her, her funny story and true story, as I'm talking to her about this pastor, my phone dings, ding, and it says, pastor, so-and-so, that pastor just liked your video. And I said, ah, and then I heard in the back of my head, the enemy say, you're such a hater. <laughs> you're such a hater. He's liking your video on Instagram, and you're such a hater, and you're talking about this guy. But then I was reminded that the Bible says that we should hate evil. When we say, oh, you, you shouldn't be a hater, you should hate evil. The psalm says it, Jesus says, says, if you are a follower, if you love the Lord, says, love the Lord and hate what? Evil. Yeah. And so one of the greatest dysfunctions in our, in our church today is actually the theology that's being taught. That we're not being taught sound theology. I can tell you, Pastor Rudy studies the word. You have sound theology here. We have several churches in the valley. This is one of them. Sound theology. Always make sure that you go home and you grab, even after I preach, you open up your Bible and you look for it and you make sure that what I said is true. You have to be two, three steps ahead. That's one of the greater dysfunctions is not doing that. And so dysfunction, the manifestation, and I have the, the definition up on the screen, is that the manifestation of dysfunction in our spiritual journey can give rise to a skewed perspective on our purpose and direction as followers of Christ. I'm going to leave it up there for a second, look at it. Now let me rephrase it. Dysfunction breeds a distorted vision for our lives as Christians. Dysfunction breeds a distorted vision of who we are in Him and who He is in us. If there is dysfunction. And what is dysfunction? Dis meaning without function. Something that doesn't Function. When people come for therapy, they come because their homes have what? Dysfunction. Their homes aren't functioning because they're dysfunctional. And usually they're dysfunctional because their priorities are out of order. 
And in a nutshell, your priorities, what should they look like? God, you, spouse, children. Memorize that. Listen. God, why? First commandment. Second, Jesus said, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. God, number one. That's the throne. The throne's at the top. That's where God goes. Not your fame, fortune, possessions, hobbies, friends, compadres. No, God. God's at the top. Then who's next? You. What? That's selfish. No, it's not. Selfish is not to put yourself up there, not take care of yourself because you're like, if you're, you're, if you're the, the breadwinner, you're, you're like, I'm a provider. I'm not going to really focus on me. I'm just work, 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 work. Work myself into the ground so that when I'm 55, I can retire. <laughs> but I'm sick now, so now I need help getting around because I'm so tired and never took care of my health, and so now I need people to move me around. That's selfish. So what do I do? I put myself right under God as a God, me, so I focus on developing mind, body, and spirit, staying healthy, so that I'm a blessing to my wife and my children. Or if you're a wife, to your husband and your children. Because if you don't take care of yourself, rather than becoming an asset, you become a liability. Is that clear? I mean, does that make sense to you? If you're not an asset, you're a liability. And so we have to put everything into alignment. That's what I want to focus on, is bringing you into alignment with God's Word. You see, we're so focused in our day today that we focus on coming into vertical, horizontal alignment. We're so focused on aligning with friends, family, our peeps on social media, horizontal alignment, that we forget about the most important one, which is the vertical alignment. This is the first one that we ought to focus on. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or live righteously, and all those things shall be added. This is the first one. And so today's message is to kind of help you think about whether or not you are in alignment. This is a way for you to evaluate yourself. It's not a reason for you to elbow your, your spouse and say, hey, he's talking about you. Get your life in order. No, no, this is about you, you that are listening, you that are online. This is about you. The Bible is very clear about living either passionate for the Lord or simply being cold, but not being, what is the middle? Lukewarm. The Bible says it. He says that he will spew you if you're lukewarm. That is when you know the word. You know about the Lord, but you're like, yeah, but I'm just going to live my way. It kind of reminds me of that analogy of the frog. When somebody is rooted in Christ, when somebody is rooted in the Word, and every day you have this, I call it a ritual, where you wake up in the morning and the first 45 minutes of your day, you incorporate devotion, study of the Word, prayer, thankfulness. The first 45 minutes, you're rooted First thing in the morning, boy, that sets you off for a great day, a great start of the day, and the great development of the day. But if you wake up five minutes before you're supposed to head out the door to go to work and you're just scrambling for your things, you've already messed your life up that day. You have to be intentional. You have to come into alignment. You have to put forth the word first. You have to be rooted. If you're not rooted in the word, here's what happens. You're like the frog. If you take a pot of lukewarm water 
and you toss a frog in it, the frog will swim. And then you turn up the temperature and the, hot, the water gets hot, the frog keeps on swimming. He doesn't notice the change in the temperature. You turn the volume up a little more, it gets a little hotter, it starts to bubble a bit. The frog keeps on swimming. He doesn't realize that that thing is boiling because it's already become accustomed to the temperature. Because it's been very gradual to the point where you turn it all the way up and now it's boiling and what happens to the frog? It dies. And you know what? It didn't even know that it was slowly dying. But it died. Nonetheless, if you take a boiling pot of water boiling pot of water and you toss the frog in that frog is going to jump right out again boom it's just going to touch it a little bit and jump right out that's what happens when you're deep rooted in the word sin is 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 abundant sin is in your midst the moment you touch that you're back out again because you're rooted in the word you live a life of prayer a life of devotion when you don't then you're like the first frog the temperature is slowly turned up and you don't even feel it. You don't feel it. You have to come into alignment vertically and then horizontally and not the other way. Come into alignment with God's word. Amen? Now, when you look at marriage, and this is not a marriage you know, uh, sermon, but when you look at marriage, you know that one of the greatest dysfunctions, I mentioned the first one was bad theology, the second one is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is big. I mean, look at the road rage that we're experiencing now these days. That's an issue of the heart. Listen to people talk. The Bible says, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you listen to people and you go, man, just by listening to what you're saying, I know where you're living. I know where your heart is at. And there's a lot of anger, resentment, unforgiveness, a lot of bitterness that stems from unforgiveness. In therapy, when I do marriage therapy, the number one issue, aside from communication, is unforgiveness. He did, she did, he said, she said, and I'm not willing to let go. Or even people who are there for individual therapy who are in their 50s and have yet to overcome the issues that they had in their childhood. And they're still holding on to 45 years worth of dad leaving them, abandoning them. And he's still holding on. So unforgiveness is another great dysfunction in in the body of Christ. Now, you're not unforgiving, are you? Are you? You're not, right? You're not. You're, you're forgiving people, right? Until somebody gets in front of you at HEB in the line. That throws you off. Now, how do I know that there's unforgiveness in a marriage relationship? It's very easy. There's evidence of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen. Now, if you're writing this down, if you have something to write on, you want to write this down. There's usually evidence of the four horsemen of the apocalypse when there is dysfunction in a marriage. The first one, and there's no specific order, but the first horseman of the apocalypse is a critical spirit. Defensiveness is the second one. Stonewalling is the third one. Now, that's when you know that something's really bad in your marriage and that you need help quickly. Because if you don't, that could lead to separation or divorce or even separation within the home where you're living like strangers, only being, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, cohabitating. But you can still salvage your relationship even when that's there, but that is proof of unforgiveness. Critical spirit, it's when you hear someone say in the marriage, you always, you never. Defensiveness, it's not me, it's you, you're the issue. 
or stonewalling. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Go talk to your mom. <laughs> Go talk to your dad. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Stonewalling. But when those are evident there in the relationship, you can still salvage the relationship. You know, obviously you need help. But that's proof of unforgiveness. But the last one, the fourth, horse, fourth horseman of the apocalypse, is the one that really kind of uh, puts the, 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 the last nail in the coffin. And there's really no return from that. Unless, you know, you really, really, you really come before the Lord and, and, and repent. The last one is contempt. Contempt is an in, intentional, purposeful um, attack on the other person to destroy their morale, their spirit. It's waking up in the morning and the first thing that comes to mind is, how can I make his or her life miserable? How can I make him or her believe that they are worthless. It's gaslighting them. It's telling them that they're bipolar, that they're depressed, that they need to see a psychiatrist, that they're messed up in the head, that they have daddy issues. That, that, that's contempt. Now, when I see that, that's like high levels of unforgiveness. There's hardly ever any return from that. Of course, there's none of that in this congregation. Amen? Liars. Okay. <laughs> When, when, believers, <laughs> when believers in Christ, when believers in Christ choose not, do you hear what I said? Choose not to forgive. Choose not to choice. It's like, um, I am unable to forgive. Lie. The word is unwilling. I'm unwilling to forgive. It's an act of the will. It's a choice. It's not depending on your capacity, your abilities, and willingness. I'm unwilling to forgive. Now, this is just me. This is not really deep theology or anything, but I don't really think that because you are not forgiving that you would lose your salvation. Now, the caveat is this, is that if you are a Christian and you know that God has forgiven you from all of your wretchedness, and you are unable, no, I take that back, unwilling to forgive, I would question my salvation. I would ask myself, am I truly saved? Did, did I truly come before the Lord with a heart of repentance and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned and make Jesus the Lord of my life? Because if I really, really did that, although I'm still human and I still, I still mess up in all these things, but at least I'm trying to let go and forgive. But I would question my salvation. So I don't necessarily think that someone who has a hard time forgiving someone that they would lose their salvation, but they do lose their peace. Now listen, someone who is unwilling to forgive will lose their peace. And they will be filled with anxious thoughts. They will lose their ability to love. Well, I've forgiven everyone, brother. Everyone except my mother-in-law. Well... It's the same thing. If you have yet to forgive her, you have issues. Issues. You don't lose your salvation, I don't think, but you lose your spiritual walk with the Lord. It's like, Lord, I don't feel you anymore. Where are you? No, he's there. He's there, but you're just pushing him away. Pushing him away as your heart is filled with resentment. I don't think you lose your salvation, but you lose your witness. You're unforgiving and you treat, you know, someone like dirt and then you turn around and you want to share Jesus with the neighbor. It's like, yeah, it's hypocritical. It doesn't work that way. 
you lose your testimony. Or you come to church and you look, you know, clean and spiffy. You look good and you got the smile and you got the Christianese. How are you today, brother? I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm blessed. And then you go to H-E-B again. I use the example. And you're, you know, the place is packed and you're in a hurry. Now you're moody, you're grumpy, and you're getting ugly. You lose your testimony. I don't think you lose your salvation, but you lose your health and vitality if you're unforgiving. And, of course, you lose your joy. Max Lucado said it this way, forgiveness is unlocking the door <clears throat> to set someone free, realizing you are the prisoner. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free, later to realize that you were the prisoner. That's what forgiveness is all about. It sets you free. In my experience as a therapist, I have yet to encounter an individual who harbors, listen, who harbors unforgiveness and simultaneously enjoys good health and vitality. Zero. I have yet to see that. Now, the opposite is also true. I have met a lot of people who are struggling with some kind of infirmity, but have the joy of the Lord. I've seen that. And they live longer and the infirmity doesn't hit them so hard because they have the joy of the Lord. But I've never seen someone unforgiving who enjoys health and vitality. Never. Because unforgiveness is rooted in pride. What does the Bible say pride comes before? <clears throat> before what? The fall. Unforgiveness impacts your prayer life. Unforgiveness opens the door to the enemy. It opposes God's will. It's proof of a hardened heart. It prevents individuals from experiencing the fullness of joy that comes from the Lord. Unforgiveness becomes bitterness, resentment, and eventually immobilizes the hand of God. I want you to focus on that one right there. Unforgiveness, the unwillingness to let go of offense, immobilizes the hand of God. God's hand can be immobilized? Yes. Does he not hear me? Oh, he hears you. Oh, yeah. But remember what the word says? He will not despise those that come to him with a humble and contrite spirit. He hears you. You come to him with a humble and a contrite spirit and he moves. Maybe not on your time frame, but he moves. Humble and contrite spirit. Humble and contrite. Those are the two components. That's why I'm saying again, come into vertical alignment with Him. Ephesians 4, 31, 32 says it this way. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. One could argue that a person reaches the pinnacle of malevolence when they choose to harbor resentment toward one another. That's like the pinnacle of malevolence. In other words, that's evil. It's to choose to harbor resentment against someone. I don't know if you remember, maybe a couple years ago, I gave an example of, of, of you know, I'm going to use this example today because it's very applicable, that I was talking to my son who's now 10 years old. I have a 31-year-old son and a 10-year-old. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Ask my wife. <laughs> okay. So 31, 10, and then I have two grandkids. And, and eight and six. And one day, Daniel comes in, my youngest, and he sees uh, his mom's dumbbells that she uses for exercising. Of course, they're like uh, two-pound dumbbells. And he comes in and he says, Dad, seriously, what is mom thinking? You know, two pounds, he says to me. You know, he's trying to show off his, his, his little muscles. And he's like, you know. And, and I, said, I said, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I said, let's, let's do a little experiment. I thought, this is a really good teaching moment. Great teaching moment. And I'm going to teach it to you today. I said, pick it up. And he picks it up. And I said, do some curls. He went like this really fast. So I don't feel anything. I said, let's do it differently this time. I said, bring it up to the side like this. He says, I can do that. And he puts it back down. I said, ah, keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up there. How does it feel? Well, it feels like two pounds. Wait. And I put my timer on. Let's, let's, let's do a minute. He's like, Dad, how does it feel? It feels like five pounds now. Hold on, hold on. Can you, can you, can you do a little more? <sighs> okay, a little more. Let's do another minute. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Dad, it feels like 10 pounds now. Exactly. I said, so here's the, here's the analogy. Unforgiveness is like the dumbbell. First, it's two pounds. Somebody hurts you. Somebody says something ugly. Someone mistreated you. And it hurt like a two-pound dumbbell. It's like, ouch, that hurt. But then you let it go. It doesn't hurt anymore. Choosing to not let go, holding that dumbbell up, if you hold it for five minutes, a two-pound dumbbell now feels like 10. If you hold it for an hour, it feels like 20. If you hold it for 24 hours, literally, <clears throat> It will immobilize your arm. It will cause atrophy. It will mess up your muscles and your nerves. And not only will it hurt your arm, your shoulder, your neck, your back, your legs, everything. You will have headaches. You will feel this pounding headache because you chose not to let go for such a long time. That's what happens to us spiritually. Someone hurts you? You can't get around that. People are going to hurt you left and right. How you process it is what makes the difference. You're going to let go of it right away, or are you going to hold on to that dumbbell that is so heavy, which is representative of unforgiveness? Unforgiveness will not only hurt your spirit, it'll hurt your body. What does the Bible say in Proverbs 17, 22? The Bible says, a merry heart is good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Milton, isn't that figurative speech? No, it's true. It's true. Do a little bit of research. The Mayo Clinic put out a report that 50% of the patients that they see for autoimmune disease, 50% have issues with unforgiveness. This is the Mayo Clinic. Because the Mayo Clinic works with them holistically, mind, body, spirit. It says 50% of our patients that are suffering from autoimmune disease have a hard time letting go. Now, I, I mentioned this, you know, last time, is that my, my doctoral dissertation is, it is a qualitative phenomenology of the connection that there is between children who were abused between the ages of 0 and 18 and how they went untreated and developed autoimmune disease in adulthood. Crohn's, diabetes type 1, Hashimoto's, Hodgkin's, Graves, you name it. 
They went and treated 80% of the people that are in the hospital today suffering from autoimmune disease. 80% were abused as children, mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually. Nobody took care of them. Nobody said anything. They hush-hush, went under the radar. Now they're sick. Does unforgiveness affect your biology? 100%. That doesn't mean that if you are sick that you have issues with unforgiveness. Let me just say that. My first wife was a very kind, tender-hearted woman who loved the Lord, served the Lord. We raised 14 foster kids, and she passed away with Hodgkin's lymphoma next to me in her sleep. Was she forgiving? Extremely forgiving. Those are things that have no explanation. We don't explain them. So that's why I want to preface saying that it's not always the case. If you are sick, that doesn't mean that you have issues with unforgiveness. If you know someone who has diabetes type 1, you don't go and tell them, you're unforgiving. <laughs> That's why you have issues. That's what he said. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you create a predisposition. If you don't forgive, because here's what happens. Let me quickly, in the next few minutes, explain the biology. Is that when you are harboring unforgiveness... When you are angry, imagine that you are using the H-E-B example again. You had H-E-B and you come around the corner where the frozen foods are at and you see at a distance that woman or that person that hurt you and you see him and it's like everything on the inside of you jumps and you, you're, you're in survival mode. Fight, flight, or freeze. You either turn the other way and run or you go up to him and say, hey, remember me? Remember when we were in high school? You bullied me. Look at me now. <laughs> or you simply freeze. And you don't know what to do. Here's the biology behind it. When that happens, you send this. It's called the HPA axis. It's a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, reaction. Your hypothalamus, your pituitary, your adrenal glands. And you secrete this thing called cortisol. And cortisol goes, it, it, it skyrockets. Your heart starts pounding, you got cold sweat, tunnel vision, your neck muscles tighten up, you don't know what to do, your cortisol is high. When the cortisol is high and is sustained at that level continually, day after day after day, it creates inflammation in your body. And when it creates inflammation in your body, you go, ah, this hurts, that hurts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need to evaluate, if, are you harboring something? Inflammation is the number one killer today. Inflammation. Inflammation causes cancer, causes diabetes, all these things. Autoimmune disease. That's the biology behind it. That's why the Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. It is true. Jesus tells us about forgiveness time and time again. Forgiveness is not optional. It's a mandate. Jesus reminds us, as my Father's forgiven you, forgive. Peter said, how many times, Lord, do I forgive? Seven times, Jesus said... 70 times 7. Oh, 490? No. What he's saying is you forgive, 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 forgive. Continuously. I mean, Jesus showed us on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. As they're pounding the nails into Jesus. Is your system disrupted when you are going through a time of great affliction? Yes. Jesus was a Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which stands for God, it uh, comes from two words, Gat Shamanim. Gat means olive, Shamanim press. 
There were olive trees. It was Gat Shamanim, Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is about to be pressed. And the Bible says, and this is according to Luke, because Luke was a doctor, he writes it this way. He says, and as he was afflicted, he sweat like drops of blood. Have you read that? You probably have. Maybe you just read over it and you're like, what? What does that mean? Oh, that just means that he was very afflicted. It's like, uh, you know, they're just, they're just trying to give us a, a visual of how afflicted he was. No, this is a condition. It's called hemohydrosis, which happens to people who go to the electric chair. People that are hung. People that know are going to die the most horrible death. They're... they're, they're, they're um, Salivary, their sweat glands and their, their blood vessels, their blood vessels dilate to the point that the blood goes into the sweat glands and they start to perspire blood. You've probably never experienced that before because you've never been afflicted to that point. Jesus was afflicted. And so he goes to the cross, he's nailed to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The maximum expression of forgiveness right there on the cross. Then we see James, and not James, but we see Stephen. Stephen, who becomes the first martyr for Christ. Jesus has already resurrected, and there goes Stephen preaching the gospel. And he was challenging the religious people by saying, God does not live in buildings. I'm paraphrasing. He says, God does not live in buildings. And they hated on him because, of course, they were making, they were making a good buck by bringing the people in and doing all these sacrifices and things. You know how it was back in the day. And so what did they do to Stephen. They stoned him to death. They stripped his clothes. Now, interesting, listen, this is powerful, and I have to wrap it up in two minutes now, but listen. And I just got through a quarter of my message, but you know, that's okay. I'll be back. I'll do part two. <laughs> listen, Stephen, they strip his clothes. They throw him to the ground. All of those religious people, the Pharisees, and they're all about to throw the rock, and there's a guy that's standing there. And he's holding Stephen's clothes. Do you know who that man was? Does anyone know? Who? It was Paul. Paul, the apostle Paul, before being the great apostle Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted Christians, is standing there with a rock in his hand and Stephen's clothes over here, and he's about to throw that stone at Stephen. And you know what Stephen does? And this is what really made them, this angered them even more. As they're about to throw the stone, Stephen looks up. As he's laying on the ground, he looks up, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just like Jesus and then he said something. He says, I see the Son of God standing on the right side of the throne. Oh, that angered them. And that's when they started to throw those rocks and they killed them. The first martyr for Christ, he showed us what forgiveness is all about. And guess what? Because, and I, this is just how I think this happened. Because of that testimony... Because of his height, because of that testimony, because of what he showed the people that were standing there, especially Saul of Tarsus, I believed. I believe that's when, when God started working in Saul's life, and started to prick at his heart. Little by little, 
so that when he is coming from Damascus on a horse and he's blinded by this light and he's knocked down to the ground and he looks up and he says, Lord, who are you? He says, is it I? I, the one that you persecute? He says, Saul, why do you do this? And he goes blind. And then he goes into town and a person by the name of Ananias, right? And Ananias takes care of him. And so Ananias is with him. And fast forward a little bit. When he comes to know and accept the divine, when he comes to accept Jesus, the Bible says that scales fell from his eyes. And he was able to see again. And that's when he became the Apostle Paul. The only person in the Bible called an apostle that shouldn't have been called an apostle because he wasn't what? An eyewitness of the resurrection. He wasn't there. He didn't experience all that, but they call him the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote three quarters of the New Testament. What? Yeah. And I think that the ripple effect, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Stephen, Stephen duplicating that same heart. Father, forgive them. And Paul sees this and becomes the great apostle Paul. Don't underestimate the things that God allows you to go through. Come into alignment. Come into alignment with his will. So I, I want to pray for you right now. And I just want you to think about this. Think about this just for a minute. What are you holding on to? What are you still holding on to? Who are you holding on to? Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a relationship that you lost. Maybe it hurt you. Maybe you have feelings of abandonment because a parent who abandoned you when you were a kid. Maybe your spouse abandoned you. Maybe a child abandoned you. Your, your kid left and you haven't seen him since and you've been praying. And sometimes you feel like giving up you keep on praying and keep on believing. I don't know what it is, but each and every one of us in this room, we have different things that we're holding on to. So my encouragement to you as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I would say think about those things. Think about those people that you're still holding on to, whether it's a resentment, a bitterness, anger, um, holding a grudge. Think about those things. Today is the day when you can say, I choose to let go. And every time, and this is the evidence that you are truly letting go, and I want you to hear this, is that if you truly let go, you will physically feel a weight lifted off your shoulders. Physically feel a weight lifted off your shoulders. It's canceling someone's debt. Remember the, you know, the cliche, the analogy of, or the quote that says, Unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting someone else to die. The only person that dies is you. So choose to let go, whoever it is, whatever it is. Repent so that God can start to move in your life so that now you can start to see breakthrough. It's like, Lord, I choose. So let me, let me pray as, as you are identifying those things or those people in your life. So, Father, we come before you right now in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that Jesus set forth on the cross. The greatest example of forgiveness. The greatest example. Lord, we don't want to be like anyone other than Jesus. 
sometimes we tell our kids, be like David, be like Joseph, be like, you know, Isaac, or be like Daniel in the lion's den. No, no, be like Jesus. I pray, Lord, that our, our, our focus would always be on being like your son, being like Jesus, and always showing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Be like Jesus. Lord, today we choose to let go and let you take over. I pray for my brothers and sisters, whatever's going on in their hearts right now, Lord, whatever they've identified. And if they haven't, Father, I pray that when they go home today and they have their time of silence, a time of devotion with you, that they would, as David say, search my heart, O God. Put my thoughts to the test and show me if there's any iniquity within me. Show me if there are any anxious thoughts so that they can let go and let you take over. Father, heal their land. Heal their land. Heal their hearts, Father. Heal their minds. Heal their families. Heal their bodies. Heal their land, Father, we pray.